Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm executive producer of Deep State Radio, Chris Cotnor. I wanted to reach out and ask for your help. My son's schoolmates' parents have family and friends fighting in Ukraine, and they are helping by providing money and medical supplies directly to those who need help. They are flying to Poland this weekend to deliver the supplies. If you would like to make a donation in any amount, please visit bit.ly slash Ukraine or visit the link in the show notes. Thank you for your consideration. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from New York City. Today we're joined by two special guests, Jill Doherty. Jill is the former Moscow bureau chief of CNN, and she is adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies. Hi, Jill. Hey there. And we are also joined by Michael Weiss, who, as you know, is a news director of New Lines Magazine and the co-author of The Menace of Unreality, How the Kremlin Weaponizes Information culture and money, and also a forthcoming book on Russian espionage. And one of the reasons I was so glad to be able to have both of you here is that while there is a lot of coverage of the war in Ukraine from different perspectives, the most elusive perspective, I think, for some is how the war in Ukraine looks to Russians. And of course, I want to cover other dimensions of it, but I want to start with that. Both of you know Russia, Russian media, how the Russian media is covering this, and also, of course, how the government is handling it. I noticed yesterday, for example, that, uh, Jill, you found the speech by President Putin about the self-purification of Russia that he felt needed to go on particularly abhorrent. I don't want to characterize it. You can characterize it yourself. It was particularly abhorrent. I'd like to start with that. How is Vladimir Putin trying to make this look to the people of Russia? You know, um, I'll tell you, David, I looked, I looked at his, his speech. I read every word in Russian. And what he's laying out is actually what he's said for years, but he has a tone to it that is really to me, kind of chilling. 
because his essential rap is the West is out to get Russia. It always has been. They have, here's a phrase in there, taken off their masks to show who they really are. They're intent on destroying Russia. Sanctions, we would have had sanctions regardless of Ukraine. And, but the turn that he made, which I think was a little bit new to me in just the overt graphic nature of it, is that now he is turning to the internal situation in Russia and the people who don't agree with this war. And that phrase about a an cleansing, a necessary cleansing of society, really means to me massive repression. I think he is out to destroy not only Ukraine, but I think people inside Russia who don't agree with this policy or don't agree with him, you know, in general politically. I really think that it bodes very poorly for what's going to happen in Russia. Let me follow up on that. How do you think the average Russian hears it? Well, I think that depends on how you get your information and who you are. The older generations who are not on the internet and they're watching TV and they're seeing 24-7 the message that the West is out to get us. Ukraine isn't a country. It's being manipulated by the West to attack Russia. People like that probably, you know, agree with President Putin and do think that it's time to close ranks and that these people who are against the war are troublemakers at best and, you know, traitors at the worst. I think if you're a younger person who is on the web, who's exposed to different types of information, and who had an idea that Russia was opening up and it was a place where you could be a normal European citizen, I think they're taking it probably in a very different fashion. I know a lot of my friends, colleagues and friends are simply leaving Russia because they feel that at least for the foreseeable future, there is not any hope to either politically get involved, to certainly to change anything or to stop anything. And, um, you know, sadly, they're, they're leaving. You know, Michael, listening to Putin, listening to what he says, listening to Lavrov, listening to what he says, listening to this uh, woman, Maria Zarkova, and, you know, the way she presents the information, it might lead someone to write a book called The Menace of Unreality, How the Kremlin Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money. This is something that you've, that you've talked about. How does it look like in recent days to you? Look, I mean, I think... Russia has gone from being an authoritarian regime to what is now a creeping totalitarian one. I mean, this, this is the language of Stalinism, enemies within, enemies without, you know, cleansing. This is the, the grammar of, of atrocity in the making or, or the preliminaries of atrocity. One of the things I've been trying to wrap my head around. So this speech, I think, will go down in history as one of the defining moments of, of Putin's career. Another speech that will go down also in history as that is the one that he gave on the eve of this invasion, a rambling tour de horizon, if you like, of everything that he finds wrong, not only with the West, but the mistakes that were made in Russian history, particularly with respect to the nationalities question, which, by the way, was one of Stalin's scholarly pet peeves. That was what he invested all this time in as a Bolshevik, studying the nationalities. I've never seen a Russian leader run down Vladimir Lenin the way that Putin did, right? Not even Yeltsin, who was more of a Democrat than Putin, for sure. He didn't go after Lenin that way. One of the things I've been trying to kind of figure out here is the people who are running the 
Kremlin today, the inner sanctum. They're all known as the strongmen. They are the security hawks, the Soloviki. They are all children of Yuri Andropov. That's the generation they came up in, in the KGB. Patrushev was the secretary of the Security Council. Narishkin, the head of the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, and Putin himself, albeit Putin was a very mediocre KGB case officer by all accounts. In 2006, something very interesting happened. When Patrushev was still the director of the FSB, he reintroduced an award, an annual award that had been uh, inaugurated by Andropov's service, the KGB, in the 70s, to extol, uh, or to, to honor rather, a work of art. It could be a musical composition, a television series, a film, a sculpture even. A work of art that extols the virtues of the Cheka, of the, you know, the security apparatus. The first person to win this award when it was reintroduced in 2006 was a bizarre choice, seemingly. It was Roy Medvedev, who is a very famous anti-Stalinist historian of the Soviet Union, right? Roy Medvedev was, was chivied and harassed by Andropov's KGB. He was expelled from the Communist Party for basically telling the truth about what had occurred under Stalinism, albeit he, he came at it from a very Leninist, Bolshevik, pro-Bolshevik point of view. What was the work of art that Roy Medvedev had, had contributed that won this prestigious FSB prize? It was a doorstop biography of Andropov. And the biggest criticism he had of this famous KGB director was that he had allowed the reforms that ultimately led to the demise of the Soviet Union to take place, right? We forget at our peril, perhaps, that Andropov's protege was, was Gorbachev. Andropov, as a director of the KGB, as one of these strong men back in the Soviet period, he had one defining mission as the, you know, the, the, the guarantor of the, the security state, the sword and the shield, which was to prevent enemies without and enemies within from destroying and, and harming and undermining the interests of the motherland. These guys who are sitting there in Moscow or in a bunker in the Ural Mountains, as the case may be, what they're trying to do is take the, the KGB's first principles, strip away all of the ideology that they feel. There's no party that they're beholden to anymore. The security men run the show. And for them now, they are at war with the West in the form of this invasion of Ukraine. And now they're going to turn their sights again internally, domestically, at those they see as, as Mr. Putin says, fifth columnist, traitors, those that need to be expunged from the body politic. Now, I read that speech as very haunting, very disturbing, but also as a warning, particularly to those who, as he, he was talking about, you know, the guys who go off to the West and eat their foie gras and, you know, sail aboard their yachts and indulge in all the Western decay and decadence. This is a warning to oligarchs, particularly those who know where bodies are buried and perhaps also know where Putin's own personal fortune is, is buried in the West. Don't even think about it. We're going to go down. You're going to go down with the ship. Don't think about defecting. Don't think about leaking. Don't think about becoming an informant, walking into an embassy and offering yourself up. Because if you do, you know what's going to happen to you. And in the last few years, we've seen how Mr. Putin deals with traitors. Look at what he did to Alexander Litvinenko in 2006, same year that FSB prize was reintroduced. Look at what he's done to the Skripals. Now he's, going, he's basically declaring war on his own people. So, Jill, I mean, this is all quite ominous. And also, if you're Russian and you're used to sort of reading the tea leaves, you know, there are signs that something is amiss. And clearly, one of those is as internet channels sort of are blocked, things flip off the air, voices disappear, access to the West disappears. And of course, that's combined with the sanctions. 
the inability to use a credit card, the inability to to carry on transactions you might have carried on. If you're an average Russian and you're going through this, common sense might dictate history being what it is, that something is up and the government's not telling you anything. And yet I have seen reports of independent opinion polls that say the Russian people generally support Putin's war in Ukraine. How do you explain that? I got back from Moscow right after that period where the war started, and then the war had been going on, I think, for about a week and a half, and then I had to leave. So in the beginning, the polls that you're looking at were taken relatively early in the conflict, and I haven't seen any that are like up to today, to give us an idea of whether the support is softening. But I've thought about that myself. I think, you know, if you take, it's hard to say average Russians, because I do think they define themselves in different ways, you know, age, income, big city, small city, et cetera. But if you take, let's say, the supporters of Putin, who tend to be older, sometimes out in the country more than big city, you know, maybe watching more television, well, almost certainly watching more television with state media and being exposed to propaganda than the younger generation, they might say, look, I don't know what's going on. I cannot believe that our government is doing anything amiss. The Ukrainians are under the thumb of the Americans. They are out to get Russia. Boy, they could be using chemical, they could be using biological weapons, as Putin said in his speech, et cetera. And they would, they would rally round the flag. Now, how long they will rally round Putin and the flag, to me, is a question, because life already is difficult. But I think, that as I've seen some studies of this, the really lower classes, the people who are very, very poor, may not be affected that directly, except for inflation. And inflation is going to be massive, and it's going to hurt everybody. But the people who are really going to be hurt are the people who were more successful and their lives, you know, traveling abroad, education abroad, buying certain products from abroad, that type of lifestyle, they really will be hurt. I mean, their lifestyle is going to, is going to be affected. So getting back to the older population, the Putin supporters, I think some of them are going to simply say, look, Russia got through World War II. We can do this, you know. We just, I don't care. I can tighten my belt. We can go on. I don't know how long that will last, and I don't know how widespread that will be. I think for the younger people who are probably in shock about what is happening right now in Moscow, not being able to use credit cards, not being able to get cash, not being able to turn your rubles into dollars, having your flights canceled. I mean, my flight back was canceled going through Europe. Russians are finding it difficult to even get out of the country. So I think those younger people, again, in shock, are going to just try to figure out, well, what do we do here? Unfortunately, because of the future of Russia, I think they are going to want to leave. And precisely because they don't believe that they can really change much. So it really depends on who you are. But but I, you know, as I was looking at this speech by Putin. I think he is very worried about this. Half of that speech, maybe even more, 
is about the economy. We paid attention to, you know, oh, those vermin and traitors. But half of the, the thing is, don't worry, we've got it under control. I know it's hurting, but we're going to uh, have programs for mothers and children. And even if you are pregnant, it's going to be okay. We're going to have money for your kids until the age of 17. There's a lot of trying to calm the Russian people that these sanctions aren't going to really, really hurt. But they are. No doubt they are. And, and I think your point about it depends on what group of people you are is clearly salient. Michael, one of the groups of people you mentioned is the security elite. Mm. Now, going into this war, the security elite either were selling a message to Putin or to one another that this was going to happen. It was going to happen quickly. Ukraine would fold like a house of cards. Everything was going to go well. This was going to be like uh, past episodes, perhaps, whether it was Crimea or Georgia, another demonstration of Russian prowess. And that hasn't happened, right? And they must be aware that it has not happened. They must be aware in multiple ways. And of course, I think we saw today a senior Russian general arrested. And we've seen some senior FSB people arrested. The U.S. is estimating 7,000 Russian dead in three weeks, which is more mm-hmm. than we lost in Afghanistan and Iraq in, in, in 20 years, about half what the Russians lost in Afghanistan in, in 10 years. But I think that number is low, right? There are other estimates yeah. that, that suggest that it is higher. So the security elite, the group upon which in many respects Putin depends the most, understand best how badly this is going. What's the consequence of that? Well, you know, there's a couple of different scenarios here. One is they sold him a bill of goods and they said, you will be greeted as liberators. Uh, Ukrainians are with us. This is all just a, been a Western NATO hegemonic conspiracy. And once we extirpate that, we'll, we'll be back to the status quo ante from pre-2014 where we can install the Yanukovych kind of figure. I strongly suspect though that there are a lot of capable intelligence officers in the Russian Federation, particularly in the SVR. Now, the guys that have allegedly been detained and put under house arrest include the head of the FSB's so-called Fifth Service, Besieda, who a lot of people didn't realize this. Um, Andrei Soldatov wrote a, a brilliant piece for the Daily Beast explaining the kind of provenance of the Fifth Service. Basically, Putin, uh, as, as somebody who used to head the FSB himself, wanted an external or foreign intelligence arm of the domestic security apparatus. So it was sort of a redundancy because that's what the SVR and the GRU, civilian and military intelligence directed outward are meant to do. But the FSB has its own apparatus that does this. And Beseda was basically running the show in terms of Ukraine as of 2014. He was actually in Kiev at one point under the, uh, the guise of guarding embassy personnel. You don't send you know, a general like that to do that. Anyway, so if, if his wings have been clipped, that suggests that Putin is quite down on the FSB. The one that you alluded to today, this was news that was um, broken by Christo Grozev, the investigative journalist um, from Bellingcat, who has actually good sources inside the Russian security services after having unmasked so many assassins from rival services, such as the GRU. And uh, he says that it was uh, General uh, Roman Gavrilov, who is the head of essentially Russia's National Guard, which is playing a, a rather disproportionate role right now in Ukraine. So maybe this is punishment for the piss poor military performance of the Russian military. 
But there's another aspect, too, to come back to that speech that we were talking about that Putin gave yesterday. I suspect, remember, this is a guy steeped in KGB tradecraft and lore and ever fearful of the threats of counterintelligence and moles and penetration. I suspect he's deeply, deeply paranoid right now. He has every right to be. How is it that the United States and its Western partners knew almost to the date, not quite, but almost to the date when the invasion would take place? How is it that they knew he took the decision to invade? How is it that they knew he was preparing all manner of false flag provocations in the occupied territories of Donbass? Now, you could say, well, maybe we're just the NSA is really good at intercepting communications. I suspect, and I have good reason to suspect, no, I think his regime is almost Swiss cheese with moles. He's running a very leaky ship. I think he knows it. And I think he's going to start to cannibalize his own security and, and, and military establishment. And that's exactly what we're, we're seeing happening now. I think there's going to be a kind of a, a massive amount of arrests, probably murder of people that he feels has betrayed him or suspects has betrayed him, or simply those he, he feels has, has let him down. Because again, in, in this sort of paranoid kind of frame of mind, if you fail, that itself is a kind of treachery, right? Why, why did you fail? You're working for the other side. This is, this is the kind of KGB mindset. Now, that's something that from a Western intelligence point of view is quite useful and beneficial because it means a lot of people are going to want to defect and get out of there before they get a bullet in the back of the neck. But it's also dangerous because we don't know sort of what he's going to do and to whom and who stands to inherit the positions that are now being vacated. There's also chatter, I have to say, and you know, a lot of people think this is getting you know, ahead of ourselves, and perhaps it is, but there is chatter among Russia watchers who wouldn't have said this two months ago, that the, the chances or the possibility of a coup, somebody taking Putin out because they're so afraid of what he's about to do, are much higher than they have been in 22 years. And I think there's some credible evidence to suggest that that's the case as well. So, Joe, I mean, that's one of the big questions here. Because Putin cracking down, Putin identifying fifth columnists and sounding exactly like Stalin on the verge of purges could frighten people into submission. That's the objective and totalitarian system, as, as, as Michael characterized it a moment ago. Or in a country that's had a bit of a taste of freedom, a bit of exposure to the West, that is connected to the rest of the world via the internet, that is connected to each other via the internet, could trigger a backlash. How do you rate the possibility that the latter happens? Russia is a place that, and I'm sure Michael knows, is where a lot of people say nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, boom, and then everything happens. And that, you know, that was the way it was in 1917. And in a way, there's a similarity. You know, I think right now, if you look at the numbers of people who have been on the streets protesting, the latest time I looked at, it's called OVD Inform, and they have the figures. So the last time I looked, it was roughly 15,000 people have been arrested in three weeks, 15,000 people. Now, Compared to the protests way back in 2011, 2012, which were for elections that were, you know, scammed, et cetera, it, it doesn't seem like a huge number, but to me, it is really significant. But in those days, back in 2011, 2012, and certainly I was doing a lot of coverage in 2017 
of the protests in the streets. And then there were more 2019, 2020. It was easier in a way to protest, you know, in the beginning, like back in 2012, everybody was arrested. Then later, they turned to this technique of not arresting everybody en masse. They would take one person out of the group and they would arrest them and then they would throw the book at them. And it was very effective because everyone got the message, wow, you know, this guy is in prison or in a work camp for the next 10 years of his life and he's only 20 and, you know, what's going to happen? So they're using people as an example, I think, is is an effective technique. Now, does that mean that we could still get to the point where there's a big explosion and people just come out into the streets? I think the younger people would go for it because they feel that their future is being destroyed by what's going on. But as I said, a number of them just want to leave and get out. They don't feel that they can really change anything. Economically, when you're looking at the country, the people who might be affected more will be the middle-aged and maybe even older, because the older population was on the streets a few years ago when they raised the pension age, which is very interesting. You know, I mean, we don't need to get into the details, but they basically said, okay, you're 60 years old. According to the old rules, you'll retire at 60. Oops, no, we're changing it to 65. Sorry, you can't retire until you're 65. It completely infuriated a lot of older people and even the younger generations who tend to live with their grandparents and their parents were very affected by that. And so you did have more protests on the street. Who knows? You know, as people are not being or are not able to find even food products that they use, there might be protests, there might be rising up. But it, it's one of those things that is really hard to pin down. And again, the polling, you know, there are a couple of polling companies, organizations in Russia right now. The one that everybody trusts is called the Levada Center. And I'm sure you know about this. And Levada Center does very Western style polling. They're very reliable. However, they are just categorized as a foreign agent. So they have to be very, very careful. Every day, it's like, will they be shut down? There's another one that's called Siom, and that is more allied with the Kremlin, but it does do you know regular polling. However, I usually shave off a few points when I look at their polls. And then the Kremlin does polling all the time. I mean, they are really watching society. So you can be very sure Putin and people around him know what their polling is telling them about Russians. And they may be very worried. Hence this speech. I really do believe it's an indication of extreme worry. And even as was said, you know, by Michael, paranoia about the situation and what it could represent. So I want to get to sort of some of the future implications and the future implications in particular of potential escalation by the Russians, because Secretary Blinken moments before we recorded this did again make mention of another bit of U.S. intelligence, and that is that the Russians are likely imminently to do a false flag operation around chemical weapons. I'm going to get to that in a second. We've got about a minute or two before I I, I take our usual break here. And Michael, in that minute or two, 
I would take advantage of the fact that I've got you here in this conversation, because last night, among the things I saw on Twitter were you commenting on a bunch of Russian planes flying to the middle of the Ural Mountains. And you mentioned just a minute ago, bunkers in the Ural Mountains. And I was wondering, this is the kind of tea leaf reading that average folks don't know what to make of, but I find fascinating. What, what was that about? This was a squadron of kind of Russian government planes all headed in one direction. Uh, they were going east from Moscow to around the Ural Mountains. Now, again, you know, keep usual caveats here apply best what we know based on reporting and so on. There are two facilities that are thought to be in the Urals. One is a kind of strange Lovian kind of doomsday place where if you were going to launch nuclear weapons, this is where you would be holed up. The other, I think there's some less clarity about what is going on there. There has been a lot of rumors that Putin is actually spending most of his time not in Moscow, but in one of these facilities. Now, that's not necessarily because he's about to launch World War III. It could just be his sort of, again, if he's is such a paranoid state of mind, his fortified command center through, throughout the war, right? I mean, this is a man who's been in isolation during COVID, uh, which has been widely reported in the Russian press. We've seen his version of social distancing, the Game of Thrones style banquet tables that he forces everyone to sit at. We've seen him do green screen events, which is a bit bizarre. There was, I think, on International Women's Day, he was shown sat next to women <laughs> at a table, but in fact, he, they weren't there. This was all CGI because his hand passed through the microphone in a way that actually President Zelensky then mocked when he gave his press conference by very conspicuously moving his own real microphone. So if Putin is in kind of this war room state, Everyone's wondering, well, you know, what's he going to do? I mean, is he capable of, as you say, launching a false flag attack, whether it be a tactical nuclear weapon or chemical weapon attack or biological agents? Now, with respect to these flights, it's a bit iffy because they they went to the Urals and they came back around again to Moscow. I saw one plane went to the Arctic and then a bunch of private planes, probably belonging to oligarchs, went to guess where? Dubai, one of the few places, playgrounds left to them in the world now that EU sanctions have set in. So. Nobody really knows what's going on here. Could be something, could be kabuki theater. I mean, we're all talking about, uh-oh, you know, could World War III be in the offing? And he likes to play these kinds of games too. So I, I, I make no hypothesis or determination based on what I've seen. It's interesting. I think one of the most interesting parts of the, uh, the social media era that we're in is that every flight in the world is tracked, almost. Yep. And they're large numbers of people who are out there going, oh, this plane with this tail number, it's associated to this person just landed in this airport. And it's just provided a kind of a fascinating overlay on all of this. This is the moment we take a little bit of a break. We say goodbye to the uh, folks out there who are listening to us, not as members, but as guests. And we uh, suggest to you that if you want to listen to the whole podcast and all of our other podcasts and all of our special materials that we're doing throughout this event. And always the best thing to do is to go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member. It costs like a latte a month. You can afford that. Help support us at doing what we're doing here. And uh, we, we hope you'll do that. And then you'll be able to hear the rest of the podcast. For the rest of you who are members, stand by. We'll be back in one moment. Wake up each morning to our newest podcast, The Ukraine Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the latest news developments and the stories we're following on the Ukraine crisis from news sources from around the world. The podcast is available now on Apple Podcasts 
or wherever you listen to podcasts, and members receive access to the show via private member feed.